On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at religion. So far, this podcast has attempted to show why Catholics consider it reasonable to hold that there is a God, and to hold that human beings are distinct from other animals, having a rational soul. Now the question presents itself, do human beings have any duties towards God? In other words, is some practice of religion demanded of one who would live a reasonable life? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Paul Isaac Franks for episode number five of our apologetic series. Apologetic series, episode five, Father Franks. How you doing? Hello. Doing fine, thank you. Good. Very good. Uh, All right, so last episode with Father Albert, we were talking about how man is made for something, right? The the essence, the the idea of who man is and and what he was created for. Uh, And we sort of left it with the idea that there is something deeper that man is created for. Um, And the teaser for that was that he is made for a purpose for... And we'll get into it this episode for a religion of some sort. But there's lots of different definitions of what religion is. Some people say, my religion is spirituality. My religion is walking in nature. So for someone who says, I'm spiritual, I'm a good person, but I don't need a formal religion. Um, what do you say to that? Do, do we have to worship God as created creatures? Let me answer your question by telling you a story. So I want you to imagine, if you will, a guy. Let's call him Bob. And Bob is a disciplined man. He gets up at the same time every day. He takes good care of his health. He regulates well his appetites. He doesn't get drunk. He doesn't eat beyond the measure. Um, He keeps all of his obligations to his business partners and the people he has dealings with. He doesn't cheat, he doesn't lie, he doesn't steal. But Bob had a very lovely set of parents. They were great parents to him. They looked after him. They made sacrifices for him, bringing him up. They clothed him, fed him, nurtured him, made sure that he was educated well, trained him in self-control, and loved him. And Bob, when he grows up, despite many good qualities, doesn't call his mom, doesn't call his dad, doesn't call them on their birthdays, doesn't call them on Mother's Day, doesn't call them on Father's Day, doesn't call them on holidays, never speaks to them, never thinks of them, doesn't think about the things that that he received from them, and just gets on with his life. Is there something wrong with that picture? Sort of. Is Bob a good guy? It seems that he's cutting off his morality from his discipline. Right. In a sense. I would say there's something wrong there. And so it is true, exceptionally, that there might be circumstances where 
a minimum contact with one's family might be required, but these are extreme circumstances. I think Mm -hmm. maybe we can all think of somebody who's just like, it's not good for him, it's not good for her to have contact with the parents. It's something where there's a legitimate right of self-defense because if that chaos gets in then and takes over the whole life, then everything becomes impossible. But those are very, very extreme cases. That is not normal. And that's not the example we're taking. The example we're taking is Bob's parents were cracking stellar parents. They did everything they should have done. They didn't do anything to harm him. They, they looked after him well, and he just can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. I think it's a problem. And I think for the same problem, for the same reason, it's a problem not to worship God because we owe him the same things as our parents. We owe him gratitude for the gift of life and all the goods that we've received. And say, if, we, if it's normal to be grateful to our parents, God gave us our parents <laughs> at the end of the day. Right. Like he's right. the first cause. So any good that I've received, I've received from God including why are we grateful mostly to our parents? Yes, they made sacrifices for us. Yes, they, you know, changed our diapers and fed us and the rest of it. But why particularly? Because they gave us our life. Mm -hmm. And if our life comes from our parents and it's reasonable to try to respect them, love them, thank them in some way and to communicate with them, then our life comes from God and it's reasonable to respect him, love him, thank him, communicate with him by the same token. And that's the understanding of of sort of classic philosophy, perennial philosophy on this matter, that religion would simply be that way of thanking, praising, recognizing what we've received from God and trying to make some sort of conscious return to him and all of it falls under that heading of, of justice. For, for, for the classic understanding, say for, for um, St. Thomas Aquinas, religion is just a sort of justice. And justice is giving to somebody what is their due, what is owed to them. So if I owe you 50 bucks because you lent it to me, justice would be me paying the 50 bucks back. If... I stole your bike, then justice would be giving your bike back. Generally speaking, justice is giving somebody what is owed to them or due to them, what they have a right to, to an equality. So I steal 50 bucks from you. If I give you 40 bucks, it's not yet justice. If I give you 60 bucks, it's more than justice. It's kind of justice plus beneficence or compensation something but um with our parents with god there's something unequal there because these are the kind of fundamental relationships that we are radically dependent on without our parents we would not be we would not have come into being without god we would not have existed or can be able to continue to exist so there's something where our very being is kind of tied to this relationship, a parental relationship, and then a relationship with, with God, dependence in a certain way at the level of our, our very nature. And 
if you don't recognize that and you don't want to make some kind of thanks or return to God, there's something off. There's something off. It's not doing what you, sh you can see would be reasonable to do, I think. Does that answer your question? So it does. So, so we're, we're making that parallel between, you know, on a human level, we owe our parents, even, even once we become adults like you and I are, we owe yeah. our parents still respect. We, you know, if, if, if our parents need our help monetarily or physical support later on in life, we owe, to, owe it to them to give it to them. And so in the same way, all things being equal. Yeah. Right. We, we would owe that same sort of respect, but in fact, even in a greater way towards God. I would say definitely in a greater way because our parents caused our being, but God is the really the, the sufficient cause of our being. God, God is the, the real reason, the ultimate reason why I am at all, why I received any good that I received in my whole life, you know, whatever, money, friendship, love, um, my education, whatever I have that I've valued or treasured, any good that I've seen, any beauty that I've seen, any truth that I've known, any meal I've ever enjoyed, any, you know, um, any good is from God, is a gift from God to me that he didn't have to give me and that I didn't even have to exist to receive. So, yes, I'm, I think there are a number of, let's say, titles of justice where we can talk about it's reasonable to acknowledge God and to do something about the fact that he's exists and has given me all these things. But one of the main ones I think is gratitude. And I think that's very easy to see. And that's our example of Bob. What is Bob? An ungrateful man. Yeah. An ungrateful man who doesn't recognize the good that's been done to him. So he takes things for granted. He takes people for granted. He's kind of entitled. He's kind of a brat. And, um, Without any reason, he doesn't acknowledge that he's been given a good and doesn't try to make some return. And mm -hmm. from that point of view, Bob is, if we met Bob, we'd be like, well, he has some good qualities, but there's something wrong there. And it's something like almost a bit not very human. Sure. You remember, you remember probably King Lear when, I know Lear is kind of, crazy but um yeah. but he the way he talks about ingratitude you know monster ingratitude he talks about the what he perceives as the ingratitude of his daughters towards him well he was being unreasonable and there's all sorts of boundaries that could have been set in that play to make <laughs> things a bit more functional but um monster ingratitude there's something a little bit inhuman there like everything's sure. hermetic and perfect and, and clockwork but there's a whole thing that's just cut off. Mm -hmm. And I think if we knew Bob, we'd be trying to excuse, like, maybe there's some trauma, maybe there's something we don't know about with his family. Just because, like, it's so not consonant, it's so um, jarring to have somebody who's a good man in many respects, but just makes no return on this fundamental relationship. Right. But... Actually, there is nothing in the example. He just chooses not to have any contact with his parents. So we've, we've established that we do owe this, this debt 
of of gratitude at the very least of honor of respect to god so then the the next question is is fairly obvious if we know that we owe it what do we do about it how do we do it right i think that the answer to that is going to depend on getting right something about the nature of god so we are human beings as father albert has told us we have an intellect and a will which he explained are spiritual powers we have an intellect and a will and they are caused by god who is our first cause which means that god has an intellect and a will god is a personal being otherwise you would have you know a more perfect creature than the creator which is absurd what we say in philosophy nobody gives what they don't have so especially well certainly as, as regards perfections i can't teach you russian i don't know russian right um but and you can't generally speaking warm up your s'mores on a on a fire that's not warm enough to heat something it needs mm. to be hot to trans transmit heat and i need to know russian to teach you russian and that's definitely the case with with all causes um in some sense or another they pre-contain the perfections that they're transmitting so if god creates human beings with an intellect and a will means god has an intellect and a will and i think sometimes when people are sort of like on the i'm spiritual i'm not religious kind of bandwagon or that's their um how they think about things i've been there myself uh, as a teenager so um i remember and understand but i think for me it was just we're not thinking clearly about god so we think god is just kind of some vague higher power god is like kind of the force in star wars or something it's like an <laughs> impersonal energy floating above unaffected not particularly knowing not particularly thinking not particularly caring not someone mhm just something right and so it's fairly clear that if that's our view of god we're just going to be like well so what you know i can kind of try and try and access that kind of source or energy i can try and um participate in that sort of energy in some way or get in touch with deeper spiritual values but that's not like somebody that i have to say thank you to and direct my and to communicate with there's no obligation to communicate with a with a kind of blob of energy yeah we can go to sedona and get some crystals and and meditate right i mean that's fun sure that's <laughs> that's that's a perfectly appropriate way to um to access an amorphous energy blob sure but it's not if god is really someone at that point it just becomes a question of a real communication so i direct mm -hmm. uh, direct my mind i direct my will i direct my mind by by thought by communication by speaking to or praying to i direct my will to by by love and maybe by some kind of external act of appreciation of the value of god and and the goodness of god and thanks so prayer prayers of thanksgiving and some kind of recognition that everything i have i have from god so recognition that he is has a value that's truly above this world and and admirable and beautiful and wonderful in its own right 
and that I'm I depend on that for my being, mm. which is the beginning of what we understand by worship. Worship to so to to see a good and to realize this is something wonderful and to express praise for that wonderful thing mm -hmm. and that's um it's something that there's a, a million ways to get a grasp on that sense of who or what god is that he is um this this beauty or this good there's a, a thousand ways to get a, a glimpse of that and in a certain sense we can imagine that it would be more useful to have just a very holy benedictine monk or here in here something like that just explaining who is god to to help people to see why it would be reasonable to pray mm -hmm. but what we can see from metaphysics already from philosophy we're not talking about christian revelation we're just talking about philosophy that would be accessible to anybody having a human reason um god is a perfect being the source of all being therefore having all perfections in a higher degree of all the things that we can see in this earth infinite unchanging perfect infinite intellect infinite love because having an intellect and having a will the proper object of the intellect is to know the truth the proper object of the will the act of the will is to love the good so if god has a will he is the highest good and he is the first truth an intellect and a will so perfect truth perfect good infinite knowledge infinite love so then we we've established that 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 god exists he has these perfections so then what what do we do about it what is i i guess the question of of this whole of this whole episode is man's religion so what is religion how how are we as not infinite creatures supposed to do anything towards an infinite being that is god right so i'd say religion is a number of it has a number of elements religion is the virtue un, that falls under justice whereby we direct ourselves to god how do we do that principally as regards our intellect as regards our will and regards as our internal actions and external actions so religion is the total of all the things that we believe about god and the practical truths that we have to believe and do in our moral lives if god is the author of the universe and gives me all the things in the universe then i should use them in a reasonable way that glorifies god um rather than an an unreasonable way that misuses the things that he's given me and then um the acts that we place of directing our intellect and our will and our actions towards god in worship so what i think about god 
how I conduct my moral life, how I worship God. And the kind of classic apologetics um, trilogy for that is creed, cult, and code. Creed, what I believe. Cultus, how I worship. Not that I belong to a cult, but colo colore, coloi cultus, right? To, to cultivate or to establish or to kind of worship religiously, to have a religious cultus is to to have some veneration and some kind of act of, act of worship. And then um, the code is going to be your morality. So it makes sense that if I recognize that God made everything in the universe, then I should try and use the things in the universe as coming from God and not as if I had complete full rights to do whatever I want over them, even if it be unreasonable and kind of obviously opposed to and or some order in nature. Okay. So, so it, it, in the same way that you were saying that since God is higher than us, he is more infinite than us. We are not infinite. Uh, therefore the worship that we could offer to God, whether through, whether through code, through cult or through creed, it's never going to be enough, frankly, but we need to do as much as we can. Is that right. a fair assumption? I think that's, that's very fair. It's a bit, a bit like with our parents as well, the same sort of deal. You cannot pay to a complete equality. It's, it's unthinkable that, um, you know, I respect my parents, I communicate with them, I treat them well, I recognize the goods they've given to me for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, you gave me 20 years, I gave you 20 years, we're done, like, we've paid this thing off now, like, let's go our separate ways, right? It's uh, kind of unreasonable, because we've received more than we can possibly give. And that's certainly the, the understanding with God that we, we've received more than we can repay, but we have to try. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that's a, nat- a natural obligation, even. So, and certainly what we think about God, that would be natural religion, part of natural religion, natural as opposed to supernatural. So I'm not talking about any religion claiming to be revealed by he- from heaven, like God says this, you must believe this. I'm just talking about if you have a well-working reason and you look at the world around you, what do you think about God? And already we would claim... Um, that there are some things that are certainly knowable about God, that there is one God, that he is infinite, that he doesn't have a body, he's not composed because he's the first cause, and it's impossible for what is first to have two parts because you'd need somebody to combine them, you know. Um, Infinite, that he's personal, has an intellect and a will, and all of these sorts of natural perfection, naturally knowable perfections of God. So what can I know about God? Um, And then what can I know about my relation to him that he exists necessarily? I don't exist necessarily. I could have not been. He cannot not be. He must Mm -hmm. be. And I could have not been. So if I exist, I exist by his choice which means he mm-hmm. loves me, actually, because what you choose is what you love, right? Right. Um, so all of this could be known, 
just at the natural level. And it's part of religion is to have the right thoughts about God. If I have erroneous thoughts about God, I don't have the right religion, even at the natural level. If I think that there are five gods, then speculatively there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. In my mind, there's something wrong. And then obviously, um, if I respect nature and the laws of nature, you know, I, I have my my body and I'm like, okay, God gave me everything. God gave me a body. And I'm like, I'm just going to chop my arm off just, you know, for kicks because mm-hmm. I feel like it. All right. Um, now it's different if you have gangrene or something or there's some kind of reason for an amputation, but um, no, I'm just like literally just for kicks because I feel crazy. I'm going to chop my arm off and like, we'll see how that feels. Um, I'd say that's a, if, if you were given this thing, this, this body as part of you by God, for no reason, it would be disordered to just destroy that integrity of, of a gift. It would just be like, thanks, but no thanks for the gift that you've been given, right? I don't know if that's a clear example, but that's right. how, that's the moral element. I think the, the element that's more um, more difficult to understand for, for maybe with a with a modern mentality is is worship. Why why worship God? Okay. And this really is because um, what is worship? A way of expressing admiration, a way of expressing esteem, a way of expressing gratitude, love and praise for God. And immediately the, the question goes, well, well, does God need those things? Isn't he mm-hmm. perfectly happy? And we would say, yeah, he, he is perfectly happy. Even naturally speaking, by philosophy, God is meant to be the infinite good, and he's meant to have an infinite will, and he is himself. So he already possesses with a will capable of loving the infinite good. So it would be infinite knowledge of infinite truth and infinite possession of an infinite good, which means perfect happiness mm-hmm. for the mind to rest in the truth, for the will to rest in the good. So God is completely happy. He doesn't need anything from human beings, really. Um, that's revealed. Again, it, You're my God. It, it, you have no need of my goods. But it's even philosophy. But it I mean, is something that is owed regardless. Even though he doesn't need it, it's something that is owed to him or something right. that we should give. I think that's 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 the point, isn't it? That, And I think that that can become a kind of pretext. Well, God doesn't need my worship, so I don't need to worship God. Those are two different questions. Mm-hmm. Does God need it? One question. No, he doesn't. Do you have to give it? Yeah. You know, it's a bit like if I... If I borrowed um, five hundred bucks from from a millionaire, does he right. need my five hundred bucks? No, he does not. Do right. I still owe it to him? Yeah, I still owe it to him. I mean, if he tells me you don't need to pay it, that's one thing. But if he doesn't tell me that, I still owe it right. to him. It's objective. Right. So, um, and certainly the way that God has set things up, um, it's. N- it's not that he wants us to be excused from the obligation of worshiping him. Um, 
we'd need very explicit written permission or <laughs> com communicated permission for something like that. You can't just assume that you don't owe. It's like, hey, I didn't see you for a while and you didn't tell me that I owed you 500 bucks. So I assumed that we were just good. You'd be like, right. no, father, you still owe me 500 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying Andrew's side, a millionaire, by the way. but <laughs> No, 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 of course not. Uh, I get lots of money from doing this podcast, by the way. I don't, for the record. Um, <laughs> but but it, actually, it's it's exactly the opposite. In the scriptures, both, you know, G Jesus tells us that we should pray, that we right. we do need to do this worship. He tells us over and over again that right. it is something that is mandatory for us to do. So, yeah. like Definitely you said, Christian it's revelation. Questions. Yeah. We're trying to, uh, I'm trying as far as possible not to make reference to Christian revelation at this stage. Oh, sorry. On the basis that we're trying to show what's reasonable first, and we haven't really even asserted that God has revealed something to anybody, let alone to Christians, Catholics. But you're right. Absolutely, you're right. I mean, it's... if. And certainly many of the people watching this will be Catholics. So they sure. already know God wants to be worshipped. He's communicated it is. It's one of the commandments, the end of the right. day. Right. Um, several of the commandments. So, um, so this so, question of, of go worship, go on. No, I, I was just going to lead you on to the next point. Go ahead. I think a, a, an interesting one for this is is a C.S. Lewis. So he's not, not a Catholic author, but he, as a young man, was kind of troubled by, by this whole question of why God was demanding to be worshipped in the, in the scriptures, in the revealed sources. He found it to be um, a little bit like, you know, if there's a, if there's a kind of insecure person around who demands that you praise them all the time and is kind of like seems a little bit needy and is always wanting kind of reassurance and validation and praise for everything they do and won't do anything without it. He's just like, is this the view of God that the Christians have? And he sort of spent some time chewing over that and came to one of his points of reflection on a book he wrote kind of reflecting on the Psalms was when we see something that's admirable and mirror in Latin means to admire, to, to wonder at. So want something wonderful, something admirable, something to be wondered at. What do we even mean when we say it's, it's admirable? We don't mean that it actually receives admiration from people because sometimes you get a, a good piece of art, for example, a good piece of work, which is neglected by the common view and a bad piece, which is praised. But we mean something more like the, the intrinsic quality that it has, such that to actually wonder at it and to admire at it, to admire it is the ordinary and proportionate reaction of a sane person who's living in reality. So that's an admirable object, something that is the correct and adequate, appropriate response to the object is to appreciate it, to admire it, to value it as true value. And if we miss that, he says we are, quote, stupid and sensible and great losers because we've missed something. We fail to appreciate things at their true value. Sure. And he says, well, I could, I could see that very well with works of nature, with works of um, art, 
why not with God? So he goes on to mm. to apply that to God at the end of his sort of period of reflection. Quote, he is the object that to admire which, or if you like to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience and the end, in the end to have lost all. Mm. He is the object to admire which, or if you like to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost all. And he says, if you see this admirable object, then the appropriate response is to enter into it with joy and all joy spontaneously overflows into praise. So this is his quote. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. <laughs> it's the, uh, whenever we see something, we instinctively tend to reflect and, and rejoice in the good in it and, and praise it. And and sh and naturally to share it as well. I went to this restaurant. Yeah. It was so good. We have to go there. I saw this movie. I think you'd really love it. We should watch it. Right. You should watch it. I read this book. I want you to read it. I heard a really funny joke. I'm going to tell it to you. Right. Right. So when we see a good, to kind of um, rejoice in it, and it's a spontaneous movement to to praise it, to speak well of it, to to express that inner joy and externally. He's, and he says, more than that, um, the experience of, of joy is completed or consummated by praising a thing. So he, this is a quote. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people you're with care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. So for C.S. Lewis, praise is just the natural response to seeing something good. And if we see that God is the source of all goods in this world, then it's the natural response is to praise God, which is the sort of one of the very important elements of, of worship, to, to adore, to praise th the source. How are we mm. able to see that God is an admirable object? First of all, just by philosophy, which is true but dry, right? It's true okay. that God is the infinite being that God is the perfect good, the summum bonum, the, the highest good, that all um, earthly goods come from him and therefore in a certain sense must be contained in him in a higher way, that God is the first beauty, 
the one of the Father Faber writes about this. I'm sure it's a very common image, but he says, just imagine that you're out on the ocean and you're in a little tiny boat. And as far as you can go, there are these infinite waves of being as far as you, the eye can see, just this kind of infinite, um, vast being kind of immersed on this vast sea of being. And that's just mm. us kind of looking at the infinity of of God, which is not really graspable, um, but we can get certainly glimpses. We get glimpses by, by philosophy, and then we get glimpses certainly by the natural world. The whole of everything beautiful in, in creation, though, the most majestic scenes you can imagine. If you've done a big road trip around the country or you've traveled around the world and you've seen vast vistas of rainforests or or the Grand Canyon or these huge valleys and ravines or you've been out at night in a thunderstorm or you've gazed up in wonder at the night sky or any of the things that you may have studied. You know, say you take a telescope and you look at what's in space. Um and how small we are, and how beautiful yeah. it is. Um, all of these things, we can see all of this beauty, all of this goodness, this kind of, if you have a soul, then one of these things you have seen that really touched you. I remember I was with a friend when I was about 20, and um, it was a beautiful sunset. I don't know what else I was, go was going on with me at the time, but this person said to me, um, isn't the sunset beautiful? And I was like, I know, I don't really pay attention to that sort of thing. And the person was like, what's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> it's probably all up in my own head thinking about my own things, but. Um. Right, but, but it is true. I mean, if, if you, uh, I was, I remember doing a, a hike just nearby. We were on these, beautiful mountain vistas and you know down here in arizona it's it's dry and it's dusty but you go a little ways and there's some beautiful mountains and i took a few of my kids on a hike and um you know typical teenagers i was like look at this isn't this amazing yeah cool i was like no 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 stop it stop look look <laughs> this is beautiful you know you have to appreciate this yeah <laughs> right yeah. you just kind of want to shake this person yeah no, but it's true. That's there are so many things at the smallest level and at the biggest level. You know, if you study them, even under a microscope, you see a, a sort of beauty, or you see, you know, just there's so much that's wonderful. Yeah, and all of this is just a little, little reflection, a tiny little mirror of the goodness of the good, the the goodness of God. The, the the beauty of God, um, right, and the the great great mind that fashioned these things in this sort of level of detail. You know, what right. kind of imagine what sort of scientist you'd have to be to design a tree, <laughs> design and make a tree. You know, right, right. I think they might so, be a ways off that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully. So, so that's the praise. That's the praise that we owe to God. What about, what about the next level of, of gratitude? Do we owe, 
and spoiler, yes. But do we owe gratitude to God for for these things? Yeah, I think that's that's where we started, isn't it? With with Bob the ungrateful man, that if I've received all of these goods from God, then it would be healthy to healthy and normal to express thanks. Um, and I love Chesterton, and Chesterton, uh, this well documented here, but he has a great quote on, on gratitude, which I love. He says, when we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? <laughs> I like it. That's great. He's got. He was. He's very into gratitude. He has another quote about gratitude. You say grace before meals. All right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. So, um, the sense that. Everything we have and our very life and all goods come from God. And it be, would be normal to recognize the goods that you've been given and to express some, some gratitude for them. Um, and that, again, is another, another reason that we pray. Um, certainly to acknowledge that we depend on God and that he made us and to acknowledge that kind of, um, we'd say, adoration but then also to thank. And um, fundamentally, we can think about individual things to be thankful for, but the, the root of our, th of our gratitude is that we didn't have to be at all, and God chose that we should be and keeps us in being. Now, all of this relies on seeing being as a good thing, but Christians do, <laughs> um, because it's a share in the being of God. And even if life has struggles and trials, um, the good is still good, I think. Right. I mean, right. It's, it's, it's really, that's a struggle for all of us, isn't it, um, in this modern world, in this dark world, to not um, let the evil outweigh the good in our perception that's uh even in um, cognitive behavioral therapy they talk about that sort of filtering out the positive and zeroing in on the negative so that it's just like the whole thing becomes a negative thing and they say it's a thinking error <laughs> right and leads to depression and anxiety um right so but it is it's important for us to really whatever we have going on that's kind of challenging or negative, that we don't let it blind us to the real positive goods that exist in the universe and in our own life, you know. And certainly that's the view of a, a healthy healthy mind, I think, that first of all is good and then there are challenges. And certainly we come from nothing and we come from God. And if we have received any good at all and we're willing to acknowledge it, then it's, we should give thanks. I have a really long quote from Frank Sheed. Do you want to hear it? I love Frank Sheed, so yes. Okay. I love Frank Sheed too. This is from yeah. a book called Theology Insanity, 
which oh, yeah. um, I read when I was maybe in university and it was very kind of important for me, very helpful for me. And he talks about man, human beings being created from nothing. Long, long quote. I can recall with great clarity the moment for the first time I heard myself saying that God had made me and all things of nothing. I had known it, like any other Catholic from childhood, but I had never properly taken, taken it in. I had said it a thousand times, but I never heard what I was saying. In the sudden realization of this particular truth, there's something quite peculiarly shattering. If a carpenter makes a chair, he can leave it, and the chair will not cease to be. For the material he used in its making has a quality called rigidity, by virtue of which it will retain its nature as a chair. The maker of the chair has left it, but the chair can still rely for continuance and existence upon the material he used, the wood. Similarly, if the maker of the universe left it, the universe too would have to rely for continuance and existence upon the material he used, nothing. In short, the truth that God used no material in our making carries with it the not sufficiently realized truth that God continues to hold us in being, and that unless he did so, we should simply cease to be. This is the truth about the universe as a whole and about every part of it. Material beings, the human body for instance, are made up of atoms, and these again of electrons and protons, and these again of who knows what. But whatever may be the ultimate constituents of matter, God made them of nothing, so that they and the beings so imposingly built up of them exist only because he keeps them in existence. Spiritual beings, the human soul for instance, have no constituent parts, yet they do not escape this universal law. They're created by God of nothing and could not survive an instant without his conserving power. We are held above the surface of our nat native nothingness solely by God's continuing will to hold us so. In him we live and move and have our being. Therefore, if we see anything at all, ourselves or some other man, or the universe as a whole or any part of it, without at the same time seeing God holding it there, then we are seeing it all wrong. If we saw a coat hanging on a wall and did not realize it was held there by a hook, we should not be living in the real world at all, but in some fantastic world of our own, in which coats defied the law of gravity and hangs on, hung on walls by their own power. Similarly, if we see things in existence and do not, in the same act, see that they are held in existence by God, then equally we're living in a fantastic world, not the real world. Seeing God everywhere and all things upheld by him is not a matter of sanctity, but of plain sanity, because God is everywhere and all things are upheld by him. What we do about it may be sanctity, but merely seeing it is sanity. To overlook God's presence is not simply to be irreligious, it's a kind of insanity, like looking, overlooking anything else that is actually there. It's part of the atmosphere in which we live, in which therefore we too must breathe, for to take for granted that these considerations are edifying and possibly even relevant if one happens to be of a religious sentiment, but not otherwise. It may be a step, first step towards a fumigation of the atmosphere if we see the fallacy of this too easy view. If you were driving in a car and saw it heading straight for a tree and called out to the driver to swerve or he would hit it, and he answered, it's no good talking to me about trees, I'm a motorist, not a botanist, you would feel that he was carrying respect for the rights of the specialist too far.
a tree is not only a fact of botany, it's a fact, and God, it is a fact. God is not only a fact of religion, he is a fact. Not to see him is to be wrong about everything, which includes being wrong about oneself. It does not require any extreme or religious fanaticism for a man to know what he is, and this he cannot know without some study of the being who alone brought him into existence and holds him there. I love Frank Sheed so much. I, I really do. <laughs> no, he, he, he writes about quite a complicated philosophical things very clearly, doesn't he? Yes. He was... I, I had never considered man. that, that the material holding up the universe is nothing. God is the cause, but the material is not, material I mean, in, in that sense, right? Yeah. That was, well, that's, that was and, incredible. And, and now I did say earlier that that was, that we're trying to uh, not use arguments drawn from Christian revelation for this part of the series. In fact, um, I mean, some people who are, who are educated might be remarking now, creation from nothing is a Christian doctrine and according to St. Thomas Aquinas, could not be known by natural reason alone, such that it wouldn't be for him philosophically absurd to say that matter always existed if God mm -hmm. caused it to exist from eternity. So that's Frank Sheed's Christian spin on a truth which is made by God. Everybody agrees that, even Aristotle and everybody would agree that. So, and it, it's interesting, but it's such an... A, a view that's a little bit foreign to our world, isn't it? So yeah. all of these things, I think once upon a time were, were fairly evident to people. It's evident that you should respect and love and obey your parents. It's evident that you should be loyal to your country. It's evident that um, reality and being is a good, that gratitude is a virtue, that... Um, that we should do justice to our fellow man and to our superiors. I think all of these things, it was, it was once taken for granted and probably would be seen quite evidently by all. Nowadays, because of our programming and our kind of um, awareness of our, of our rights and growing up in, in, in the atmosphere of liberalism, I think sometimes these things become less evident to us. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I exist without my consent. I didn't ask for this. And I was born into this world, and now I have to suffer. And what right do you have to bring children into a world when they didn't consent to be brought into the world, and then they're going to get into this lousy world, and it's going to be a pit, and they're going to have to deal with it? Like, that kind of... <laughs> those are the sorts of right. things we hear from our contemporaries, no? Um, right. So there's something that kind of fundamental... We live in a, I'd say we live in a certain sense in an age of pessimism. Um, sometimes yeah. it, it hides itself under partying. Um, but deeply, sometimes there is that kind of, that deep pessimism, even about whether or not it's good to be alive at a fundamental mm -hmm. level. What is right. being a good, you know? And so... Right. Um, but, and like you said, it's it's a pessimism only because it's it's only looking at the negative aspects of the here and now. They don't right. understand that. Yes, even though 
the world is is crappy right now yeah that's fair uh yeah that you being made you and me father being made uh gives us the opportunity for something much greater but they're but they're not seeing that point they're just seeing the the here and now and, and the muck in which we're living yeah and i think that certainly um that father robinson already talked about the problem of evil and sort of not letting mm -hmm. that overwhelm everything um in our view as well but i don't think it's i don't think you have to be a christian to be like like celebrate the little joys and then you know go you know you could be a perfectly happy um i don't think you need christian faith to be like go out forget about your own problems look at the leaves on a tree for a bit right and just kind of look at it and take it in and let the universe soothe you <laughs> right and um, and just and just look and at a tree and just head. be happy yeah just be happy that there is a tree and just rejoice in the tree for a minute i mean that sounds super woo woo you know out there but it is true there's there's something good about that i mean that's that was the whole thing of john senior um when he was teaching out there at ku um the beginning of wonder is just to be in touch with nature so he mm -hmm. had his kit his students there and he'd be like okay Scott stargazing we're gonna go stargazing he yeah. writes about how he's reading the canterbury tales to them i think it was the canterbury tales and um there was this kind of picture of a kind of personified rooster or something and none of them laughed and he was like I realized that they just didn't have any contact with reality. Like they didn't know what a rooster was like and they couldn't put it into any sort of context and they couldn't see the disproportion. And it was just like, it's, everything is, the contact with, with nature is not there. Yeah. So, um, and we could, we're not going to bewail that and throw ourselves into um, rhetoric about a virtual reality and how, how it almost seem it seems calculated to separate people from a natural environment um you could almost suspect a conspiracy to uh keep us from the author of nature if you were so minded to do but sure. um no it's a healthy thing to be in touch with with nature and for us it's a way to god mm -hmm. um, and a lack of appreciation for that shows a lack of well the lack the loss of an ability to wonder is a very sad thing right and is will tend to make us small and sink in on in ourselves it's a a very natural and human thing to be able to wonder at the world outside oneself um yeah and a very healthy thing I think yeah. so no and but then to return that to its source because even creation some this is the thing that some of the uh the spiritual authors will say the trees are beautiful and the valleys are beautiful and the mountains are beautiful and the seas are majestic and the night sky is majestic but they cannot speak they cannot recognize their own they cannot think they cannot speak they cannot recognize their own beauty they cannot thank god for it not with 
the power of rational speech with the power of rational thought with a with a human heart we can if the mountains are to praise god if the seas are to praise god they can only do it through our mouth for our mouthpiece through man as receiving the goodness of which they speak the beauty which they hold perceiving it and making a return so it comes down from god and through our perception and our gratitude and our praise it returns to god perfecting the circle that's the that's what some of the uh, the spiritual authors mean when they say man is the priest of creation man is the priest of creation that he alone is the one capable amongst all the rocks and the sea and the the water and the elements and the trees and the animals he alone is the one capable of seeing all taking it in understanding where it's come from and returning in praise to the source through mm. worship through adoration through thanks thanksgiving we've talked already a little bit about how god doesn't need our worship yeah. which like you said before true but sort of irrelevant um but it is something that is owed to him out of justice. What about, you know, going back, you know, a few minutes ago to when we were talking about marveling at the trees and, and nature and, and wonder, we get something out of that when we do that. I don't know about you. Oh, for sure. I, I assume you do, but we get something out of that. We get joy, we get satisfaction, happiness, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what do you say to people, Father, who would say, yeah, okay, fine, religion, cool. I I don't get anything out of it. I When I... When I talk to God, when I worship, I don't get anything out of it. What's the point? Yeah, I mean, I would I would start by saying that's not the reason that we do it. We don't do it to get something out of it. Maybe there's, I mean, it's not the fundamental reason that we, we pray. It's not the fundamental reason that we worship God. The fundamental reason we worship God is something like the same reason that you call your mom on mother's day on her birthday <laughs> right i don't get anything out of calling my mom on mother's day <laughs> you're a brat <laughs> i don't care what you right. get out of it like she's your mom <laughs> right. Right. yeah exactly. i mean it's not it's not about like it's not all about you my friends say to me a thousand times a day but <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's true. It's not, it's about God, isn't it? It's about recognizing what we've been given and making some return in, in love and gratitude and, and praise for the, to the true good that is there. I suppose just so that we're not incomplete, um, there's a, a common sense thing as well that when we do wrong, offend God, when we misuse against our own conscience the things that we've been given, um, if we recognize that God is the author of the moral order, in other words, that I should not have done this, and that by doing this, it's a misuse of a gift I've been given, so... Um, I sh part of of a religious 
soul is to like, well, by misusing the gift I've been given, that's a kind of, it violates a, a right gratitude as well. And so um, there's sort of, uh, well, God is someone. So we can really talk about a relationship of someone to someone. Now, okay, Christian revelation, God is three persons. We're not there yet. But God sure. is personal. That's my point. So if you misuse the gift that somebody gave you in a way that's unreasonable and hurts other people and your conscience accuses you of it, and you recognize that the order of morality comes from God, then some prayer of kind of repentance or sorry saying or making up for the evil human choice, the bad human choice, um, comes into religion as well. Element of um, reparation. So, Can we make a distinction between, so, so now that we've seen that we do need to do some sort of religion, and it's not just about us. It's not just about making us feel good. Right. How do we do that? Is it an internal feeling? Is it an, an internal thing? Or are we obliged to do things externally, to, to do something? Yeah, I know. That's a, that's a good question. And certainly, sometimes outside of, um, of Catholic circles, so maybe in certain Protestant circles, th that... This is kind of linked to some of the mis this mistrust or suspicion for the the very concept of religion. So they would say, "I don't have a." This is kind of a common phrase. I don't have a religion. I'm not a religious person. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This kind of idea. In other words, I have what I have is internal, and religion is something merely formal, external, ritual imposed inauthentic and what i have is in interior authentic spiritual acts of intellect acts of will acts of love and so on um we do not see catholics do not see this disparity and in fact we would say it's very reasonable that if religion is man's return to god as recognizing his dependence on God, recognizing the goods that he's received and making a return to God in praise for the goods received, adoration, praise, thanksgiving, sorrow, petition, whatever, that since man is body and soul, it makes sense that the whole of man would return to God. Everything that's dependent on God should return to him. My, my mind, my soul my will return to god by interior acts of intellect and and love that's true but also my body depends on god and it's fitting that my body should make return to god how by some kind of external action so by um well any external action that expresses my interior praise love thanksgiving whatever whatever that be so um gestures of the body, um, like uh, prostrating myself on the ground to show the, uh, the fact that God is above me and that I subject myself in, in adoration to a higher being. 
um, kneeling down, certain physical gestures, whatever they be. We would say, not talking about Christian revelation, not talking about Jewish revelation of the Old Testament, we're just talking about human reason, that that the body should play its part since it too comes from God. That okay. It's, it seems to be part of the, nat- the natural order, and even the nat- St. Thomas would call it the natural law, part of the natural law that there be some physical expression to my acts of intellect and my acts of will. It's actually helpful as well. Nobody disagrees that the soul of prayer is something internal. Merely right. going through external motions without any will to pray or worship God is not in itself a valuable thing. I think you remember um, Hamlet. Remember Claudius is a murderer, an adulterer. And um, he goes to pray to the chapel. And Hamlet wants to kill him. But Hamlet doesn't want to kill him when he's praying because he's like, oh no, he'll be forgiven and then he'll go to heaven and that's no good. So, <laughs> right. And then after that scene, um, you hear the words of Claudius in his little kind of tiny little soliloquy or whatever it is, a few lines. Um, my words fly up to heaven. My thoughts stay down below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. So in other words merely external motions without any participation of the intellect and the will, the internal spiritual powers, purely external worship that's not an expression of internal worship doesn't have much value and he recognizes that, right? Everybody recognizes that the soul of it is something rational and something voluntary, acts of knowledge, acts of love. So on its own mere external physical actions are less important than the internal actions. But still, the body is made by God and should play its part. And you know and I know that um, it's quite hard as a human being who is made of body and soul to elicit the internal actions, which are the essential soul of worship, when your internal actions aren't supporting them. It's much easier, and maybe you've had this conversation with your kids, to direct your mind and your heart to God when you're kneeling in a quiet place with your eyes closed um, to say your rosary than it is, you know, um, you still got the radio on in the car and like everybody's doing everything else. And you're like, okay, let's pray the rosary like now. You don't even turn the radio off and everybody like people carry on their conversations and you're like, "It's, it's hard. You know, so of their nature, you know, it's, or again, um, I'm just going to pray my rosary in bed. I could kneel down and say my rosary on my knees by my bed. I'm just going to pray my rosary in bed because, you know, it's the internal thing that matters, not the external thing that matters. Chances are that my internal actions are going to be better if my posture is supporting them, is helping me to really direct my attention to God consistently. I'm likely to fall asleep if I pray my rosary in bed. Sure. <laughs> so. So we've seen we, that we need the internal 
and the external. What about in society? Is there a is there a need? Is there a necessity for there to be a public or a social religion? Right, and this is exactly my point.、Um, as far as organized religion, because this is another thing, isn't it? People don't like organized religion. No, organized religion is is like oh, the organized is what freaks people out. Right. So as long as it's like something that I do on my own terms, it's like okay, I'm religious. I have my own way of praying to God. When it's organized religion, a lot of things come into play. I mean, a lot of mistrust comes into play, and the sense that this is something man-made, and the sense that this is something inauthentic because imposed on me by others, and the whole of the whole narrative of authenticity comes into play, and.、Um, What we would say, what classic apologetics would say, is man should worship God as a human being, and part which means according to the dictates of human nature. So, what is a human nature? Something with a body and something with a soul, but also on top of that, something not just as an individual life, but something made for society. Human being is of his nature social. This is the Consensus of,、um, let's say, the perennial philosophy, Aristotelian,、mm-hmm. Thomistic, classic、um, philosophy, contended that human being was social by nature. Okay, how do we prove that?、Uh, most basic proof: take a human baby, dump him on his own, see how he does. Right, leave him on a mountain to be raised by wolves, see how that goes down. Right. Um. So, just first observation: the young of many species can fend perfectly well by themselves. They have instincts to know what they should eat, what they should not eat. They have natural weaponry. They can be hatchlings, and they never see their parents, and it's fine. The human baby, not so. Right? It needs, for its very nature, to be. Supported by others, protected by others, looked after, clothed, fed, nourished, trained. You can eat this. You must not eat that. Don't put your hand in the fire.、Um, taught a language. Taught basics of civilized、um, interaction with others. So that it can have some kind of life outside of its family one day, unless it intends to marry within its family, which is not advised. You know,、um, so for his overall perfection, for his overall well-being and full flourishing, a human being needs others around him, and quite naturally, the others. Who have a certain obligation to be around the baby and look after him are the ones who are responsible for his coming into being, which is to say, the parents. So, just the fact that a baby exists and needs to be looked after, it's not really equitable if one of the two parents who is responsible for the birth of this thing takes off and leaves the other one to look after it. All things being equal, right? So.、Um, It's even basically 
there's a, an indication that the human family is something natural. There is, and the human family is, in our sense, is a society. In other words, it's a stable group of individuals living together under the direction of an authority. There's somebody directing the family to do what's good for it. Okay, we're going to do this today. This is the chore day. This is spring cleaning. Now today we're going to go out and I'm going to go hunting with Billy and whatever. There's some kind of direction of the of the members of the family through a kind of coordinated life, a common life, a common activity, so that they can bring about the good of, of all the members. Um, and we would say that's something rather natural for human beings. So if the family is, is a natural unit, it makes sense that family prayers should be something natural as well. Right. Led even by an authority the, within the family. And even beyond just the protection and survival of a person, people need education. They need advice. They need warning, correction, all that kind of stuff that is necessary as well. And right. that's where religion also comes into play there as well, because we need moral instruction too. Oh, for sure. I mean, if we say that um, there are some naturally noble truths about God that are, that you can work out, if the parents know them, it would be kind of, it would be kind of wasted time and effort to leave the kids to figure them out on their own. If you can just tell them, right. hey, by the way, there's one God, and um, He made everything, and uh, He loves us, and it's we should pray to Him. <laughs> kind of basics like that. Yeah, a moral and religious instruction in order to reach a, a kind of human full flowering. I think that's quite normal. But in itself, even then, the family is not um, not a sufficient unit, obviously. That um, there are certain goods that the family alone will find it hard to procure. So if I'm a huntsman, I can teach my kids to hunt, but I probably can't teach them astrophysics. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I might, I might not be able to teach them music. My kids might have some aptitudes that will be um, impossible of realization, of full realization and full human flourishing if I just live in my family on my own as a kind of separatist life, which is where a wider human society comes into play. That it's, it's natural for man, according to Aristotle, not to live solely with his family, but also to live with others in a broader society, a city for the ancients. And so and Aristotle's definition of human beings, zoon politikon, political animal, a, a civic animal, a, a city, a state liver. <laughs> I don't know right. how you say it. but um, And certainly right. that's, that was the view of St. Thomas Aquinas and of, of classic philosophy and was challenged... Um, much, I mean, let's say after the uh, the time of Rousseau and Hobbes and and Locke, with with the advent of social contract theory, all of these questions of how did we get into society? Was it by the free choice of man, or was it by the intention of God? There is a political and philosophical discussion around that that arises more and more um, after that kind of say, after the French Revolution, before, just before and after the French Revolution. But we would say, look, if there's a God, 
which we say there is, um, and he gave us human nature, there are some signs in human nature that really it's made for other, for association with others, which is what, what I mean by social, a kind of stable association with others. Take, for example, just the fact of human language, human language itself. What's the point of having a human, well, first of all, you, we have an aptitude for language, but you don't actually know any language until somebody teaches you one. The basic structures of your mind may be set up for it, but unless you actually learn a language from somebody else, you don't know any language. You see that in the case of children who've been left on their own, like kind of feral children raised by wolves or whatever. There have been a few examples in modern history documented and they couldn't speak when they found them, and they didn't do well at learning to speak when they were finally found, aged 15, 17, whatever they were. They could pick up some rudiments, but um, there's no point in being having an aptitude for language if you don't learn a language and then if you're not using it to communicate with somebody else. So just the fact of capacity for language already indicates a human difference that points in the direction of social life, stable association with other human beings. Right. And then this is, since, since we have this gift of speech, since we have this gift of rational thought, right. with which we express through, through our speech, then it would make sense that we would need to use our speech in order to not just teach people, but in order to use it in order to... Uh, express our religion, the religion which right. we have to express in some way or another. So then we use it, uh, we express it through our speech. I think that's very true. And I think that's, I mean, if you concede m human beings are made for social life, that means that they are social in nature, which means that they should worship in a social way, which means somebody has to direct them to some kind of coordinated social worship, which at that point becomes organized. So organized religion, according to classic philosophy, arises from human nature. Man is social by nature. Man must worship God according to his whole nature because his whole nature is dependent on God and comes from God, which means that man should worship God in a social way which means that social worship is natural. Social worship has to be, according to some common form, appointed by somebody, i.e. by a, some sort of a authority, religious authority in a society. So organized religion is something required by natural law. Okay. That's the argument. And um, another way of phrasing it, which is the same argument put in a different way, human society itself is created by God. Human society is, is, is dependent on God, is a creature of God. Creature in the sense of not like a little furry fuzzy thing with I don't know what, but creature in the sense of something created, a made thing. Okay. And... Um, Every, everything created by God, insofar as it has reason and will, 
should make some return to God. Society, being made up of rational human beings, participates in reason and will. The people who run the society, well, you can't have a society without some leadership. Right. Because society is a bunch of people living and working together for a common end. If you don't have the coordinated activity and directed activity for a common end, you just have a free-for-all. It's not one society. It's going to be different people pulling in different ways for their own ends. It's not one thing. It doesn't have that coordinated action as a whole. It's what Marcel Ducot would call a a dis-society. Right? Um, So... No common good, no coordinated activity. No, you need it is you do need leadership to have a society, which means that it's in God's disposition, in God's plan, in giving us a human nature that there should be leaders or authorities. Sure. To use a, an unpopular word, <laughs> yeah, there should be leaders, right? Right. I think we're all comfortable with leaders. Um. We like the idea of being good leaders ourselves, and it's not such a maybe it's not such a negatively charged word. Authority already makes us kind of bristle a little bit. Sure. Same thing, though. Same thing. Um, right. So, the people who are leading society have the brain, have the intellect to see. Okay, we all and the whole social unity the soul, whole social body comes from God. And because he made man social, he made society. He actually wanted it this way. So the whole social body as a social body, if things were well-ordered, would recognize we, we depend on God. We have received goods from God. We have received our being from God as a social body. And we should praise God and worship him and adore him and thank him and say that we're sorry for any shared sins as a social body, which means corporate worship according to forms prescribed by an authority. So the the leader would be like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. I'm the priest, and I'm going to go up to the altar and say these prayers, and then um, you all are going to say this prayer, and then we'll finish. Or whatever it is. And we're going to meet sure. on Tuesday at um, this place. And this is how it's going to happen. This is all right, as if God had not told us anything from heaven. This is just what human beings would have to do using their intellects and their wills in the abstract as if, if God had left them kind of to their own resources as far as figuring out religious truths. Now, Christians and a bunch of other religions claim that he didn't leave us to our own resources. He told us things from heaven about how what we were meant to do. But that's going to be the subject of future podcasts. We're just saying right now, what would we have to do if he hadn't told us anything or presuming he hadn't told us anything? We would still have to be religious. We would still have to make physical acts of religion. We would still have to make social acts of religion according to some kind of organized form dictated by somebody who was a religious leader. Now, who the religious leader would be, I don't know. It'd be fitting that it could be the same 
leader as the um, as the leader of the country or the leader of the state, whether he be a king, whether he be elected, whatever form of governance you had, it would make sense to that. But he would have the the ability to delegate. Okay, I take care of the affairs of state, and this is my re- appointed religious leader. This is kind of like the priest, and this is the um, the king. Could be, that could happen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that is would be indicated by by reason itself. We argue. Would reason say anything about the uh, relative importance of religion compared to other things? I'm thinking of you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for instance, which he doesn't put religion in there, right? Uh, but is there, can we rank religion in terms of the importance of, you know, where we should put it in terms of our duties, in terms of our needs of survival or society? I'd say it definitely um, exceeds our obligations to any created person. You know, we have an obligation to our parents because we depend on them we have a obligation to keep our contracts to others in justice um, we have an obligation to obviously be kind to our our kids and be good parents but um, all of those God is a higher good God is an infinite good and we we are made for him in a certain sense. And that might be a bit more than we can, um, we would have time to to prove philosophically. I think Father Albert might have touched on it. We have an intellect, we have a will, these are spiritual powers, and nothing merely material can satisfy them. If the intellect is made for an infinite truth, if the will is made for an infinite good, well, they have a capacity for an infinite good. They have a capacity for an infinite um, truth. Did he talk about that? Yes. So that means that nothing merely finite will pr- truly satisfy the human being. That there's some good that will bring a complete happiness that cannot be lost, that will be the greatest happiness, the greatest rest for the human mind, the greatest satisfaction for the human will that will be um, loved for its own sake. So, and St. Thomas Aquinas goes through all of the kind of contenders of what could make people, what could be thought to make people happy. Is it money, power, pleasures, riches, reputation, um, strength, beauty, he says, with all of them, that's not it, you know. And we know that anyway, because the sure. amount of um, super rich, super famous, um, well-reputed, um, well-supplied with every pleasure they could possibly want people that we know of who are still terribly depressed and sometimes um, conspicuously so uh makes it very very clear that's not it it's not just amassing stuff and having more and more pleasurable experiences that 
really um, settle the human heart and and give rest to to a human immortal soul mm-hmm. with a intellect made for absolute truth and a will made for the absolute good. So the, the last uh, kind of broad point that I wanted to chat with you about today is we've established that man should have a religion, should practice a religion, is has a duty to do it, has a duty to do it externally as well as internally, also as part of a society. Mm-hmm. Um, does rational thought, logic, tell us anything about the necessity to make sure that the religion that you are practicing is the right one? Um, you know, there's there, there could be all sorts of different ways of, of practicing religion. We've seen it throughout history. We still see it today. Right. Uh, but does, is there a necessity for man to to seek out the absolute truth? Well, here's the thing: if God is God, and we depend on Him, that means that um, we want to think rightly about Him, and we want to know what He wants us to do. So, yes, even on the natural level, let's say that there's no revelation from heaven, um, but you just, you do have a question to, to think about it seriously. Say God never revealed, and you're just like, okay, well, what is, who is God? What is this all about? Can I work it out? That would have to be a serious question. What is right? What is wrong? May I do this? May I not do this? You'd have to think about that seriously. Um all, all of these questions would deserve a, a proper consideration. But um, I would say, naturally speaking, one thing that is not impossible is maybe God could actually communicate to us. Maybe God could actually directly intervene into human history and communicate to the human race. Right. So why do I say that's not impossible? Well, God has the right, God is a free agent. Um, that's, I hope that should be clear. So some people have com- conceded that, some people have sort of conceived of God as being in some way bound. And it's like, what would bind an infinite being, you know? Um he can he he was free to create he was free to not create if he created it's because he chose to create i mean he could have made trees purple and he could have made the sea red and he could have made the sky a different color and things could have been different and it's if he chose to make it the way it is it's because he chose to do it that way there's a billion other ways it could have been everything so um, God would be free, and already he made us in a certain way. We come from nothing. We come from him, and we're made to go back to him. We're made to at least to go back to him by acts of intellect and will and to praise him. And so... 
if he made us, we we still depend on him. So he would have the right to tell us, hey, look, good job there. You figured out um, that there's one God and that he doesn't have a body and that he's good and that he made you and you depend on him and so on. And you've worked out that you should do some kind of worshipping with your bodies and your souls. And you've worked out that you should do it together in a group. But not everybody's on the same page. And um, you're all fighting with each other about it. And so just to settle things and kind of for the sake of peace, this is what I've decided. I've decided that every Thursday, you have to go to this place and you have to recite these prayers and you have to do this, sacrifice this thing, and then um, and then you're done. And then, then you do it again the next Thursday. That's what I, how I want it to, to be. So who would deny that God has the freedom to make that decision if he wants to? And who would deny that God has the ability to communicate that if he wants to? Right? Um, so... If I can speak to you in such a way that you're like, oh yeah, Father Franks is talking to me right now, surely God would have that power as well. You can't say that Father Franks is more perfect than God. That would not make <laughs> that would not make a whole lot of sense, right? If there's any perfection that is normally possessed by every human being, every human being can stand in front of you and speak to you and you know it's like, okay, it's, this is my wife, this is my teacher. You know who's talking to you. So to communicate and to communicate in such a way that you leave no doubt about who's speaking. If a human being can do that, God can do that. How would we know it was God speaking? That will come in a future discussion, but it would have to be some kind of telltale sign of something that only God can do. For example, interrupt the laws of nature or their application. So... Um, if you know for sure that it's not possible to raise dead people and then you see somebody for sure raising dead people, you're like, ha, huh, this seems to be beyond human technology. Um, there is, it's not impossible for God because God gave life to people who didn't have life in the first place. So you should look into that seriously. Somebody says, hey, I've come from God, I've got a message, we should be going to this place on Thursday and saying these prayers, and here's my proof that I'm speaking from God, I just raised three dead people. Let's say you're, um, you're a pagan and you've, got, you've not heard of, um, there's no revelation being made to human beings yet, just in the abstract, um, you have the positive duty to in, inquire into a religion which seems to you to have the signs of divine approval, divine revelation, um, to see if it's legitimate. How would you know if it's legitimate? Well, it leads to at least agree with um, common sense reasoning about God and common sense reasoning about morality has to not contradict itself. And it has to, um, you'd expect there to be some kind of, let's say, unusual um, divine sign 
proving its truth, whether it's knowledge of something that's future that somebody couldn't naturally know, or some hu human action or n physical action that wouldn't be humanly possible. And, I mean, you expect it to be the sort of thing that could come from God. So, something with a certain kind of sublimity. There are certain signs that you could use as a kind of a tip-off to see, um, is this the sort of thing that... So, anybody who comes along and is like, oh, by the way, I've got a revelation from God. There are five gods, and um, it's okay to marry a sister, you're just like, okay, well, maybe that's a bad example. All the atheist apologists are going to be like citing Old Testament things to me now. But, um, <laughs> but you're okay. Um, if, it, if it's opposed to what we know already for certain from natural reason, something's plainly irrational, um, contradictory to reason then um, it would be it wouldn't warrant further investigation if it's if it's certainly contradictory to reason sure but no that's it's possible that God tell us things that we don't already know just by thinking about them for example what his how he would like to be worshipped that's kind of a natural mystery there's no way we could know that it's a, a mystery from a natural reason. Maybe he has a preference, but we wouldn't know unless he told us. Um, and certainly there might be other things. Hey, there are these things. They have an intellect and they have a will, but they don't have a body, and they're not God. Okay, they're, they're, we call them angels. They exist, by the way. God could tell you that. There's no way sure. to know if they exist or not. Like, if you don't, if they don't have a body, then you could never bump into one, and you could never do an experiment on one to know if they exist or not. But they might exist. There's no contradiction there in saying, okay, there's something that has a spiritual nature, but it doesn't have a body, and it's not God. No contradiction. So it's possible. How do sure. you know if it is a real thing? Um, God could tell you that if he chose to. You know, yeah. he could tell you, you are, this is what human life is for. You have to take certain means and then you have to um, come to me. And when you die, this is what happens. And there's actually an end for human beings that you wouldn't have even thought about where you contemplate face-to-face -face the divine essence for eternity, like a supernatural end of human beings, which is what Catholics claim there is. It's not impossible. We don't know by natural reason alone. Um, if God wants to communicate that to us, he has to make it very clear by certain divine signs of approval, but it's not impossible. So naturally speaking, you should be on the lookout for something that seems to be reasonably um, a good candidate for being a divinely revealed religion. Right. Father, this has been fascinating. And, and I've mentioned this before in some of our other episodes, but I'd love that we're looking at this just from the aspect of, of pure reason, at least at this point, we're going to get into revelation. We're going to get into tradition a little bit later, but 
I, I love that the that the foundation of our faith is just so truly rooted in common sense, logic, reason. It it helps. It helps a lot. Yeah. It's um the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation below our faith, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. There's there's a kind of um the base the, the, the foundation, you're absolutely right, the foundation. Say so not of our faith, but the foundation to our faith. Does that make any difference? Is that a yeah, different statement? Th- the foundation of us, really. I mean, yeah. It's a good distinction. But well, it's Father, thanks. No, it's true. Go it's ahead, sorry. it's um there are some basic questions. And the most fundamental question is um it's very fundamental. Does man's mind grasp reality at all? Mm-hmm. So how I see it is there's the, that base question, kind of like the epistemological question, can we know reality? And mm-hmm. then on top of that, there's, is there a God? Is there a human soul? Is there any difference between human beings and uh, other animals? And then I guess lastly, this question that we've talked about, okay, given that there's a God and a soul and I can know reality, do I have some obligations based on that? What do I do about it? Yeah. What do I do about it? And up and, and and after that, all there is to do is look at well, could God reveal? Has God revealed? If so, what does He say? And how mm-hmm. do I know that the people who say that He revealed to them um, are right? Right, right. Yep. Fascinating stuff, Father. Thanks again so much for taking the time to go through this. Um, right. I know you took a lot of time to put it all together and and make it cohesive for us. So thank you. Thanks so did much. My best. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> you did great. Thanks, Father. All right. God bless. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.